Welcome to Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness, a series featuring life science executives who share their stories and insights related to clinical operations and clinical trial readiness. My name is Kelly Rich, and I'm the EVP of Product and Clinical Research Solutions at Archimedics. Learn from our experts as they share their key learnings, obstacles, and success stories. Listen in to hear how health and life science organizations can better equip teams and clinicians to accelerate the development and adoption of new clinical treatments and best practices. Our guest today is Ken Getz, Director and Professor at Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, Tufts University School of Medicine. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your background, Ken? Sure, and thank you so much for having me today. So I am the director of the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development at the Tufts University School of Medicine. And we're an academic uh, group, an independent group that gathers macro level data that describes uh, drug development practices and trends, the impact of new regulation and uh, other factors that might be uh, challenging drug development performance and efficiency and economics. And we routinely publish the results of our work to really help inform uh, professionals in the drug development enterprise. Yeah, absolutely. I've been a consumer of this information much of my career, so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today. And the timing is great because the latest 2020 data is out on protocol design complexity. So I was hoping that you would share with all of us the top high-level takeaways you know, before we get into their impact and the details. The high-level findings won't really surprise uh, your listeners. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because in the 20 years we've been gathering this data, we've been monitoring the same consistent trend, which is that uh, looking at nearly every variable that uh, are, characterizes uh, design, protocol design today, uh, the complexity is rising. So with very few exceptions, we see scientific complexity, the number of endpoints, the number of procedures that support the endpoints, uh, all of those are rising. Um, if we look at the types of endpoints, the area that's growing the most are the tertiary and exploratory, what we call the non-core endpoints. And then nearly every executional variable, like uh, the number of countries, the number of sites, the number of visits per patient, and perhaps most notably, the volume of data that we're collecting has just grown uh, dramatically. And so this latest study, I think, will surprise people in how much complexity has continued to rise. Yeah, I mean, that flies uh, almost counter to everything I was, I, I call it raised on, because I've been in clinical trial research now for, I guess we're coming up on 25 years, and it was always keep it simple, only collect what you need, um, find the answer quickly and get out. So it sounds like we, we've, we've moved away from that a little bit. It's, uh, and you know, I used to get asked the question, uh, knowing what we know about the relationship between complexity and performance, that adverse uh, or that inverse relationship, um, why don't we see more protocol simplification? And um, I don't even ask that question anymore myself. I, having been gathering this data for 20 years, what I ask now is, how do we better manage complexity? Um, and I think perhaps even more importantly, maybe there are other strategies we should be emphasizing. Simplification is not 
a clearly not a strategy that is resonating and that is easy to accommodate. Yeah, I think that's true, but it, it might make sense to even pause just for a little bit longer for our audience to really help make the connection that you might see between trial design practices and how they link to performance, like specifically in terms of things that we all hear about, which are cycle time, in, enrollment durations, uh, retention struggles, uh, and of course, site compliance. Can you say a little bit more? I mean, I think we're going to move into like, how do we manage complexity, as you mentioned, but maybe stay on the simplification for one more minute and, and make yeah. our case. And I'm happy to do that. In fact, this study um, gathered much more granular and richer data on performance and quality uh, or more outcome variables, dependent variables that are influenced by the design variables of the protocol. And exactly as you're suggesting, uh, protocol complexity is inversely correlated with performance. The more complex a protocol becomes, the worse performance in every measure. So we can look at a variety of cycle time variables like uh, the overall duration of the trial or even individual time points, the startup uh, uh, from protocol readiness to first patient in, for example, the um, uh, any type of interim uh, data point or the closeout of the trial, all of them are longer now than they were before. And the more complex the protocol, the significantly longer we see those cycle times. More complex protocols have far worse uh, uh, failure rates and, dr and uh, dropout rates. We see much higher numbers of uh, protocol deviations for complex uh, designs and a much higher relative number of amendments uh, to the protocol. So all the things that you're talking about um, that relationship is so strong and really speaks to the need to figure out how we, how we get a handle on this, given how complex our protocols have become. Yes, well, well said, thank you, Ken. Um, so it sounds like you're alluding to the idea though that you are shifting to acceptance that, that complexity, um, maybe it might be unavoidable these days. Is that fair to say or? It's a really good question. It's, um, the, um, the word unavoidable, I, I think, is misplaced. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that companies uh, are uh, deliberately heading toward complexity and they could avoid it, right? It's more that complexity is inevitable, right? Um, yeah. So it's, it, and if you think about it, there are just so many factors that are really causing uh, hyper complexity. We're seeing much more uh, rare disease uh, targets uh, in our pipelines. We see more stratified patient populations, right? In more precision medicine, especially in oncology, which is adding uh, more biomarker and uh, genetic uh, information that we need to collect. Uh, and that's applied even to screening for our study volunteers. We see more companion diagnostics. We see companies trying to collect more um, uh, uh, economic data and even more value demonstration data that to position a drug once it enters the marketplace. So the, it's, it's really remarkable how many 
external factors and uh, changes in our pipeline that are all driving up uh, complexity and uh, nearly impossible to avoid. Sure. Well, and, you know, in, in light of the fact that we know that the more complex, the more sort of, you know, negative outcomes we, we might get in terms of performance, are there any advantages in, uh, you know, clinical development that are putting on this drive towards complexity? Like, you know, w- what are they getting? I mean, there's a reason we're doing it, obviously. So, so what is that? And, and what is the potential advantage there? Right. Um, oh, and uh, I just wanted to mention, by the way, that I did not even touch on decentralized uh, clinical trials, which everybody's talking about and, and looking at now. That adds uh, executional complexity as well. Um, the advantages run pretty deep and they're pretty compelling. And, uh, you know, if you talk to many companies, they'll tell you that some of the data they're collecting. Uh, will provide real strategic insight to them into uh, a a new uh, disease target, for example, or uh, uh, that where they can apply a molecule that uh, has already been approved for another uh, indication. Um, A lot of the data that's collected really informs the statistical analyses and the interpretation of the data. And with more advanced analytics and augmented analytics with uh, machine learning and, and other AI supported analytics, having more data that is really the result of that complex and robust uh, protocol, you wouldn't really have that. So there's a lot of that, that uh, we're, and there's a lot of pressure on organizations to gather more of that data, patient convenience and patient participation preferences is another advantage that you get with some of the more complex designs. They're harder for us to implement, but they may make it a lot easier for a patient to gain access to a clinical trial and to participate in the study. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I I guess the bottom line is uh, when people say uh, to me, uh, you know, is the Tufts Center suggesting that complexity is bad? My initial response is we're not saying that at all. We're saying really that complexity is a reality, right? And uh, it has a lot of benefits. We just have to manage it more effectively. Yeah, I think you make a really great point on, certainly we all hear the buzz around, you know, patient centric and reducing burden and uh, sustaining engagement throughout the trial. So we don't lose so many patients, Um, you know, but with that comes this much more distributed model data from all different sources, uh, lots and lots of more volume data. And then, like you mentioned, we, we have the tools to manage that data. Uh, it just operationally and logistically, I think, is, is still a real challenge. What do you see the role of the regulatory agencies here? Do they have any incentive to try to tamp down the complexity of protocols? They do. They have a lot of incentives um, for two decades, the FDA has often complained that uh, they're inundated with far more data from each uh, submission than is really necessary. And that creates tremendous uh, work burden for them. And uh, it's very, very labor intensive activity and time intensive activity. So uh, I think the agency has also often felt that a lot of the data that's being collected creates noise and might even detract from the core data elements. Um, And there has been uh, papers in the literature 
that show that the more data we collect, often the sloppier our analysis, right? That somehow yeah. we're so overwhelmed by all the data that we don't spend enough time on the data that really mattered. We, we, we get distracted. And we've done studies that show a little bit of that. Uh, we have a really bizarre behavior in our industry. It probably is in other industries as well. When we collect data, we feel compelled to report the data we collect. Mm -hmm. So even non-essential data makes it into the clinical study report. In, uh, and if it doesn't make it into the narrative, it appears in a table or a listing. So we find creative ways to pack in as much data as we can. You know, Kelly, the, the FDA uh, and the EMA really got into quality by design principle mm -hmm. and, even the, uh, and even advocating for risk-based monitoring and a risk assessed approach to, uh, to uh, interrogating data so that they could try to help guide industry in minimizing the, the volume of information it's collecting. And so far it hasn't really helped very much. Yeah, I mean, I can't counter it. I've definitely been in the room where I recommend start with the CR, CSR and work backwards, or I ask the question, what will you do with this data? And even if the answer is, I'm just not sure yet, I, I have a <laughs> tough time. I have a tough time getting them to leave it on the cutting room floor. So I uh, empathize and understand. So, And one other thing I just wanted to mention, and you probably have experienced this yourself, the more people involved in providing input into the draft protocol, the more information it collects and the more that information is non-essential to the, the primary endpoints of the protocol. So, and almost all of our protocols, when we look at design practice are now soliciting more input. So it's, uh, this is kind of a, a challenging and uh, difficult cycle yeah, absolutely. They're, you know, setting up thought leader groups and expanding and getting input from the, the variety of the clinical operations groups. Uh, you're right. Like that's a lot of voices uh, packed into one document. So it makes complete sense. So, well, you know, staying on the theme a little bit, though. So given the growing number of investigator complaints filed to the FDA, where we, we realize that typically they're around noncompliance, uh, how do we manage complexity more prudently? Yeah, and uh, it, that's a really great uh, question because it really gets at something we've been monitoring for uh, also for decades. When you look at uh, FDA inspection uh, mm -hmm. uh, that are performed, the vast majority of them uh, are associated, the complaints that they receive are associated with protocol noncompliance. It, it really raises the question um, is, uh, that where we have to look at complexity based on the many factors that define it. And we have to sort of tease out those areas where there are there is real action that we can take to address it. Uh, for example, we know that there are a large and growing number of procedures that support tertiary and exploratory and miscellaneous endpoints. About a third of all data we collect targets those alone. That would be a great place to start and to really just try to at least uh, ask the question, how important is this to this particular study? Could it be delayed some of those procedures or even omitted? We know that some of the 
data collected for core uh, endpoints, primary and key secondary endpoints, uh, those procedures are often performed excessively. Like we're only interested in the data gathered at, at visit three and visit nine, but we collect it at every patient visit anyway. So there are lots of things like that where you have to get sort of below the surface to, to really, and look at the schedule of assessments, for example, uh, to really understand what's happening and finding ways that we could change the strategy a bit so that uh, we're at least collecting less data. Yeah, it sounds like we, we need um, really strong leadership throughout, right? Because I've been in that discussion too with the, the slippery slope of like, well, I, I, I think I only needed these two times to make my point, but what if I miss, what, you know, what if X number of patients miss that point? Maybe I, just in case I have this extra point and then, well, now I need an extra point. And then pretty soon, like you said, you filled up your schedule of assessments with far too many, um, you know, assessments. So, and then another area, you might be a lot closer to this than am I, but um, we've been doing more work looking at uh, non-adherence, uh, patient uh, dose non-adherence. And it's a much larger problem than people realize. We estimate based on a study that we conducted that about half of all doses, uh, I'm sorry, half of all patients will intentionally not take at least one dose. And of that half, 10% of those patients won't take more than 30% of the doses required by the protocol. And the reason I point that out is that it's things like that that also drive up complexity because what do we do? We, uh, what most sponsors do to account for non-adherence is they increase the number of patients, they increase the number of sites that they'll engage, usually involve more countries. And all of that has a direct cost associated with it. And yeah. as run up that executional complexity, we, we face additional challenges. So it, I guess what I'm saying is when we start to look at the underlying drivers of so many of the protocol decisions that we make, the design decisions, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. I've seen, I've seen that where uh, you'll either then add more in-clinic visits because you want to get closer to seeing them take their doses and you want to, you know, stop a problem sooner, or you'll, you're really faced with, you know, some early technologies that are coming out that are quite expensive to try to get patient adherence uh, to dosing. So I agree, it's a real complex problem. And the only real solutions they have right now are just throw volume at it, right? Uh, throw volume of patients, volume of data, volume of sites. So yeah, all good points. So then we gotta start leaning towards how do we start optimizing, right? And how do we start maybe improving? So what kinds of things, and you've alluded to it a little bit as you're starting to think about the protocol and the schedule assessments, but maybe lay out like, what can we do before the trial has even started to try to, you know, optimize our opportunities and, and manage this complexity? The, um, that's really the area where I go as well, trying to sort of figure out, are there, are there actionable ways that we can address the design of the protocol? And then as I alluded to at the beginning, I'm also leaning toward, are there new ways to manage the potential challenges that are introduced by a complex protocol, because they're, they're all complex today. Yeah. So, you know, historically, the feasibility review committee looked like a really great idea. And of the, if you looked at the top 50 largest pharma companies, 
easily half of them had created a, a new governance mechanism that would internally look at a draft protocol and just and challenge the feasibility of executing that protocol. And mm-hmm. they would go out to the clinical team and the protocol authors and ask them to justify why certain decisions had been made and would raise their awareness of the economic impact of adding another procedure, for example, or the anticipated increase in time that it would take to execute that protocol. Those feasibility committees were getting some pretty good traction and then they started to lose their, their leverage. I, and I, some of it may have been due to some of the complex uh, scientific uh, opportunities uh, like uh, immuno-oncologic uh, treatments, right? That uh, there, you, we started to see very, very advanced scientific approaches that were requiring more sophisticated and complex designs as well. We saw the introduction of more personalized medicine. So the feasibility committee has largely been decentralized. We don't really see them anymore. And now what we see is a growing role for patient engaged drug development activities. So the use of like a patient advisory board Mm -hmm. or site advisory board that was something you mentioned where companies are increasingly turning to external experts and the, the greatest expert of all is the person living with the burden of disease who can really talk right. about. And, and that's where we're seeing companies making really big strides today, getting that and incorporating that patient input into the design before it's been finalized. Yeah, that's great. I'm a big fan of prevention, have been my whole career. It doesn't always play well um, in this sort of uh, industry that's more comfortable doing what we've always done. Um, you know, but preventing those kinds of things and creating a good experience. I've always been a good fan. And it sounds like, you know, having some of those steps in place would help. What role do you think, you know, because I've certainly seen a huge uptick and you mentioned sort of the complexity of the science they're attacking, but you also see a lot of really small biotech, uh, you know, companies and, and, and it's a lot to ask a three person team to have an advisory committee and a feasibility committee. Do you think that plays a role or am I just kind of anecdotally getting there? No, I think that's a really good point. And that may also explain why the traditional feasibility review committee has kind of gone uh, gone away. The largest companies, I think, probably felt that it was too big a time commitment to, to allow that process to unfold. And people were getting, uh, are, are managing so such heavy workload to have to also have an appointment on a committee, yet another committee probably was a too big a burden. And for the small companies, as you said, I think that they, people are wearing so many different hats right. and, uh, and they're scrambling and often many of them are racing against time without any uh, actual uh, product generating revenue. They're just burning through uh, investment capital. So to your point, they, I, I don't think they have a time for a lot of the traditional approaches that, that were in play 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, we talked about the, the, the uptick potentially and, and the value of patient advisory boards, but do you, have you seen yet that they have enough clout in whether it's the timing of how it rolls out or, or their ability to truly influence the protocol? Like, are they really being heard? Do you see that? We do. Um, and it, it's a little bit 
spottier in terms of who's doing it. We know of a few companies now that have embraced uh, advisory, patient advisory boards for all of their uh, primary uh, phase three pivotal trials, for example. We mm -hmm. see others that are really just dabbling in them, sort of piloting it here or there. In the study we just completed, the protocol complexity study, we had about a, a dozen protocols for which a, an advisory board provided input. And it's remarkable, Kelly. I, th I think if you saw this, um, what we found is that when a PAB was involved, mm -hmm. the number of endpoints was significantly lower. The number of procedures performed was lower. Cycle time wasn't improved dramatically in the study, uh, especially like uh, these, uh, I think startup cycle time was improved, maybe because the protocol looked more feasible to the patient. Sure, sure procedures, yep. Right, but I think downstream, long-term, I'm not sure the overall duration was uh, that much improved. Uh, here's the interesting thing though, that for those protocols that had a PAB involved, the, uh, the overall timeline of the program, however, came in closer to the plan. The actual timeline came in closer to plan than for those that did not use an advisory board. Yeah, that's good news. You know. So we're looking to publish these findings now. It's only 10 of them, but at least uh, it's a start and it, it is pretty uh, compelling, uh, the impact that they had. Yeah, it can move us in the right direction, which is great. So let's talk a little bit about what do you think sponsor and CRO teams can do to better prepare sites based on this protocol design data that you've uh, collected? The, um, I, that is such an interesting question because I, I uh, almost feel like it's the other way around. It should be the sites that should be preparing the sponsors. So uh, I, I definitely think that uh, sharing the insight into the impact that the protocol has on performance is mm -hmm. important for sites to know, but it almost, we have to almost go in the opposite direction. There's so much that the sites can teach sponsors about uh, the challenges that they face in executing the designs of these studies. And the, the volume of protocol deviations now is just so remarkable. Uh, so I, I think that feedback really has to be internalized by companies and they have to look for ways to support their sites in, uh, in ensuring that these can be executed in a, man, in a man manageable way. Yeah, sure. I've absolutely been on studies where we're collecting a whole bunch of deviations, but really the, the understanding that we have is that that data or that way of collecting data at that site isn't available. So it's like you're holding them to a deviation when they're really telling you, I can't do it that way. I couldn't have done it that way. And it's sort of like, how do we get that information in a non-reactionary way? Like we've already got a patient and we're already collecting the data. And now we realize we have this gap. Um, it, it's a challenge really. Cause you know, I, I certainly think we, we try to share protocols with sites and we try, but there's something in that dynamic that we just haven't optimized yet. Right. Cause we're, yeah. we're not, li not listening correctly or listening right. with follow-up action. You know, we see some companies that will literally compile all of the letters they receive from the sites, you're probably doing that as well, right? And you, often if you read the language in the letters, you get a really good feel for design elements that the site anticipates they're gonna have a lot of trouble with, or they're already encountering difficulties. 
And sure enough, if you look at those letters and compare them to where deviations occurred, they're remarkably aligned. Yeah, another thing I'll look at is, and it's in my um, data, maybe nerdiness, is I will take the giant query data set after a study and mine all of the query responses from sites and find themes where you get to their frustration points and to the places where they just didn't have that available. And if you layer that with protocol deviations and then feed that back into your study design, you know, you, you could see some real improvements. But I guess that just hasn't really taken off, right? Like that's not the norm. You need to publish that experience, even as a case study, but that's such an important feedback mechanism. I don't know of other organizations that are really doing that or routinely doing that. Yeah, and I think if even a few years ago, mining that data set would have been a pretty heavy lift, but as tools improve, you know, at this point, I can really dig through that much more quickly uh, than I could even, you know, a few years ago. So yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, and that's such a good point. I mean, I think as the data volume grows, of course, there's even more incentive for us to leverage some of these more sophisticated analytical tools and techniques. And um, I, I think the just being able to manage the feedback and uh, get a retrospective view of factors that might have contributed to uh, the performance of your protocol, I think uh, this is the time to be really mining the data to get those insights. Yeah, absolutely. We agree. So let, let's shift into uh, protocol amendments. We, we really, you know, I've certainly experienced studies that run pretty smoothly, but also studies that really have, you know, a, a fair number of amendments. Um, on one hand, they might be improve the design, right? You learn quickly that you didn't have something right and you, you need to make a change, but they can also be really disruptive, uh, use up resources, challenge platform, technology platforms. Um, so maybe talk about what you, you see in the data and, and how do we find a right balance or is there one? Yeah, it's uh, and amendments are is one of those areas. Everybody has a painful story yeah, right. about them. Um, and often people talk about the amendment as the problem. The amendment is a solution to an underlying problem, as you know. Yes. So obviously some of it really relates to the things we've been talking about, getting that input early, sort of pre-planning anticipating where you think you're gonna have troubles with the execution. Like, and, and the number one reason we amend is to relax the eligibility criteria, right? That's, uh, that's the other thing. The, mm -hmm. I think I, you've seen some of our research in this area, the typical amendment, which is unplanned and unbudgeted, as you mentioned, adds three months of time and uh, approximately half a million dollars in direct costs to implement. Uh, we think it's probably two to three times that number if you include all of the indirect uh, costs that are associated with that. So it's, it's incredibly costly and is probably one of the big drivers of a lot of the increases in cycle times that we've been seeing for so many years. Um, you know, we touched on this really at the beginning of our conversation that they're not all uh, amendments are the same, right? right? Some are unavoidable, and some are, in this case, are really avoidable. In those cases where just out of habit, we cut and paste a phase two design into a, our phase three protocol template, you know, that um, when we learn so much by, by executing that phase two study that would have resulted in refining and revising 
the design. That's a very common uh, habit that we see many companies do today. Um, we see a lot of smaller companies with really, really complex diseases that often will use a design uh, template uh, from another source even that, uh, and it hasn't really been scrutinized carefully to see if it applies fully. Uh, it, there are just so many places. Um, the eligibility criteria issue is one of the ones that many companies deem avoidable if they had sure. gotten input from the patient community and from the site personnel. Right, more information about the actual population would, you know, validate their assumptions around, you know, eligibility criteria. Cert, you know, certainly, it, you know, it really speaks to though this. I've on any trial I've been on, there's always pressure for first patient, first visit. But what we're really saying is we've got to somehow make this case that your last patient, last visit is significantly delayed. The volume of data and maybe the message you can say about your data, it could be diluted if you don't do this upfront work. Um, but it's real hard to get people to do that in the moment, isn't it? Like, it what, is. else, what else can we do? That's been the mantra for, I want to say, more than a decade. Right? Let's stop looking at first patient in and let's look at the last patient in as our, as our primary focal point. Uh, we found in our most recent study on protocol amendments that 40% of them occur before the first patient has even received the first dose. So many were saw that and said, that's just a clear indication that in our race and in our haste to get it out into the clinic, right? We didn't spend enough time really yeah. changing the design to see if it, we, it, was, it was feasible. Each of these things you say, I want to push back and be like, no, Ken, that's not happening out there. But I, every <laughs> single one of them, I can tell you, I have absolutely been on a trial that has had that happen where we've done multiple protocol deviations before we've even enrolled a subject. So I keep thinking when you say, oh, I'm going to tell, no, he's, he's not right. But you, I absolutely have had all of these things occur. So I can't, I cannot push, push back. So as we look out into the future, um, where do we stand? Do we, do we think protocol design is going to continue to increase in complexity? Um, we, do. we do. We do. We do. We think it's, we think at this point, um, the, as, as we were saying right at the outset, focusing on simplification of the design of a study was probably not the right goal. And mm -hmm. that, that was probably the biggest error that I made in many of my early papers on the results of these studies suggesting that that's our eye should be on just reducing the number of procedures, right? And the number of visits to simplify our designs. That may play a small part, but we're moving more into sort of a, what I call a mitigation mindset. And it requires a lot more coordination, especially with um, the uh, growing belief that we're going to move into more of these hybrid mm -hmm. institutional models where some patients will choose to participate remotely. Others will want to come in for their in-person visit. Um, everybody's, and we're going to be collecting data from so many different uh, tools, wearable devices and uh, smartphones. So we're going to have to become more agile in accommodating a complex designs with new management models. Uh, some of the data might be collected uh, autom uh, you know, uh, automatically by, uh, by a specific device. Right. So we won't have to worry as much about that, right? 
Some of the data will be collected by a specialty lab that will somehow tie in with the patient's health record. Some of it will come directly from the medical record and we won't have to gather it specifically through the administration of a protocol procedure. So I, I think a lot of it's gonna come down to integration and coordination and new management models to address complexity moving forward. Yes, big challenges ahead, but great opportunities for innovation and, and uh, you know, like you said, increased utilization of the technology tools and, and fine tuning those. So certainly that's why I enjoy living in the technology space and, and helping support you know, a platform that is asynchronous and on demand so it can help with this distributed for, you know, decentralization is also distributed, right? That means we're yes. the reach that we have to have in order to have reasonable oversight has just, you know, quadrupled uh, as we move into these hybrid and decentralized studies. So it's such a good point. And I don't think that uh, the people who are authoring our protocols really have a full grasp of all of these distributed uh models and technologies and practices supporting them. To, to your point, I think we really have to uh, learn, we have to, as a, as a clinical team or as a protocol author, be much more expansive in our understanding of the, the wide variety of models that are being brought to support the execution of a, of a protocol today. Yeah, and that, that almost reinforces what we've talked about around then going back and sitting in the patient's seat. If you were the patient and you had to go through this protocol that you've now just written for months and are approving, would you stay? Could you do it? You know, does it make sense to you kind of thing? I think that enterprise perspective of sitting in everyone's seat who's going to be involved might help us fine tune our designs, you know, over time. So I look forward to, to it. I mean, again, it's still, it's still a big challenge. So is there anything else, Ken, that you haven't gotten a chance that you really wanted to share with our audience today? No, I just thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to talk about the results of our work and its implications. This is, as you noted, such an exciting time given many of the new approaches that are being uh, brought to the clinical research community, especially during the pandemic. And I'm really curious to see what impact that will have the next time we do our study. Will designs be even more complex with uh, an even wider variety of models that are now becoming more mainstream. I will see. Well, I absolutely look forward to a future conversation. I think that'd be great. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Where can our, our, our audience learn more about your work? So they can always go to the Tufts Center website, mm -hmm. uh, just a Tufts CSDD and you'll find us. And we do list our uh, peer review publications, where you, and you can get copies of some of uh, those papers. We're also adding presentations that are given on many of our studies, so you can even download a PDF of a PowerPoint presentation. So lots of, of good places to go. And if you can't find uh, anything that uh, is quite what you're looking for, just send me a note, an email directly, and I'll, I'll send you something. Thanks so much, Ken. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness. If you're interested in learning more about our team, head to our website, archimedics.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you like what you've just heard, please share with a friend and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for joining us.